You are listening to the Enormo Cast. So what do you approach in your approach shoes? El Cap, the Diamond, the Traps? How about Supercrack Buttress or the Mushroom Boulder in Waco? And what about your mailbox, your job, the local coffee shop? Have you ever approached something scary, awe-inspiring, or heartbreaking in your approach shoes? And what is your actual approach like? Do you stomp, dance, or electric slide your approaches? Or do you walk in beauty like the night of cloudless climbs and starry skies? Let's face it, climbers actually do everything from waltz to wedding vows in their approach shoes, not to mention hike, scramble, and lead those last few pitches in the dark. So why not get an approach shoe that can handle it all and look great doing it, like the TX4 from Sportiva? The mighty TX4 approach shoe sports a sticky sole, leather upper, bomber rand, and unbeatable build, as we'd expect from Sportiva. So whether you're bombing up some trail to paradise in the pre-dawn light, or just kicking around town feeling the afterglow, why not approach everything with style in the TX4 from Sportiva? Check out the whole TX line at Sportiva.com or your favorite local shop. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? you playing here? We're doing the... Uh... Enormo Dome, whatever it is, it's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold oh, it out. Out. I'll say, you really, really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Cluse. It is September 29th, 2019, about 11 o'clock here in Colorado, and this is episode 184 of the Enormacast, a conversation with climber and photographer Corey Rich. But before we get to that, I would like to stop and uh, collaborate and listen. Yeah, there's a little bit of vanilla ice for you. Did you catch the Byron in the Sportiva ad? Lord Byron, anybody, anyone, go back and listen. It's in there. Anyway, as I was saying, I'd like to take a second to pay you guys a compliment. Um, I'm always astounded by how much good feedback the people who come on this show get. Most recently, you know, I got a note from Molly Mitchell, just how amazing the response has been to her interview here, um, talking about her anxiety and just all the stuff that we talked about in there. And that's that's not unusual that the guests on here get back to me and talk about how great the response is from the listeners to what they say, how they act, how they come across on the Enormacast. And it's just really nice that pretty much 100% of the feedback that everybody gets for coming on the show is positive. Malcolm Daly actually complained that he couldn't get any work done at Neptunes because people coming up and... Uh, thanking him for doing the show and uh, talking about the stuff he said on the show. So I want to thank you all for being good climbing community citizens. 
you know, internet stuff, it can go south with the commenting and with the feedback. And uh, very rarely, it almost never does on the Enormal Cast. And finally, thanks for making the guests feel like it was worth their time to sit down on the Enormal Cast. All right, let's get to Corey Rich. Corey is a fan of the show. We've communicated about the show over the years, and he's been interested in coming on and finally had a really good reason to come on. He's got a book coming out. Actually, it's out. He's got a book that just came out a couple days ago, The Stories Behind the Images by Corey Rich. And um, we've wanted to coincide this release with the release of that book, even though I got it back a few months ago. The thing about Corey is that I think if you've followed Climbing Media for the last, let's say, 20 years, then I think a lot of what we, as consumers of Climbing Media, think climbing looks like, the mythology of climbing, the archetype of climbing, has been really influenced by Corey Rich's work. And you're you're probably not going to be able to think of exactly what his photos are until you look back and see his name on some of the things that you've just internalized and uh, looked at hundreds of times over the last, again, couple decades that he's been shooting photography. And, you know, these photographers shape our image of what climbing is, what it looks like, how it feels. I think Corey's been as influential in that in the last few years as anybody. Even though he's very deferential to his influences, he's very deferential to the folks that have come before and kind of the shoulders that he's standing on. Uh, He's one of the greats, and um, it was a real pleasure to sit down with him. I think this is one of the favorite ones I've done in a while. Just from, from a personal standpoint, I just had a really good time talking to him. I thought it was fascinating what he had to say about how he gets his shots, his history, and uh, I think it's pretty funny, too. We, he's got a great sense of humor. So um, I'm pretty proud of this one, and I hope you guys enjoy it. And, and remember, at the end of this, uh, check out his book, The Stories Behind the Images, fresh out. You can get it anywhere that books are sold. I, of course, like to direct you all to the Mountaineers website, mountaineers.org. The publishers, you know, go there, pay them directly. Don't uh, necessarily give Amazon their cut. And uh, it's over at Amazon too, if you must. Check it out, review it, put a review on any of those websites. It helps the thing float to the surface. And uh, if you can't get in touch with Corey, tell him what you think. All right, folks, let's do it. A conversation with Mr. Corey Rich. When you think about it, is there another gear company so dedicated to outfitting climbers from head to toe as Black Diamond? They've got lightweight modern helmets and headlamps for your pointy head, high-performance apparel to wrap that sweet climber bod you've been cultivating, all the way down to their line of advanced climbing shoes for those tender piggies. They've got crash pads for the pad sniffers, the best protection money can buy for the trad dads, ice tools for the masochists. Pitons, haul bags, portal ledges, backpacks, draws, beaners, harnesses, tents, probes, skis, poles, and even the signature Enormacast rhinestone-studded unisex microfleece G-string. Well, no, that doesn't exist yet, despite me stuffing the suggestion box every chance I get. Hit me up, BD. That's money just sitting on the table. So next time you're shopping for, well, nearly anything a climber could want, honor the generations of weary Black Diamond engineers pouring over AutoCAD in their cubicles when they'd much rather be climbing. And go to blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite local shop to see the fruits of their dedicated labor. And remember, Black Diamond is a proud sponsor of the Enormacast. This is cool to see your podcast set up. This is awesome. 
this room and this setup is kind of fun. Um, every time I go to a hotel room that I haven't been to before, you know, I walk in and I'm just like, all right, what's going to work? What kind of like furniture do I have to work with? What do I have to move? I mean, I've rearranged hotel rooms completely. Of course. To yeah. get like a, some sort of setup that's comfortable and, you know, where we can kind of look at each other and, and be far enough apart to have like the mics a little bit isolated. Um, and then the, the freaking always the, the whatever HVAC system is going to always be a nightmare because some places you can't turn them off. Some of them don't go off when you turn them off. So, um, I mean, this is, this is super cool for me because I, I devour podcasts. Right on. You know, I'm definitely you travel one of, a lot. Yeah, yeah, I mean, standing in security lines, riding my bike, sitting in a tent while it's raining. I listen to podcasts. Con- you know, I'm one of your listeners that has probably listened to every episode. Oh, really? Yeah, probably, Sir, probably. What? And then I'm I'm just a huge consumer of. Maybe that's more a statement around my life that I stand in lines too much and sit mm-hmm. on planes too much. But the uh, the seeing behind the scenes of how you make the Holiday Inn Express work into in, a, in studio, you know, 703. I don't even know right, what room. Yeah, <laughs> until, yeah, no, that, it's funny because, you know, the podcast form, it's gotten way slicker. I mean, podcasting in general, but the original, the original scene is DIY. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. even in like Marin, Mark Marin started that, you know, with the garage. Yeah, of and, course. And like, he's become the bit, one of the biggest in the world. So, you know, it, it it has that aesthetic where you can get away with a lot more than what you can. But I think I think you're doing this in true climber spirit in oh, yeah. that it's you've kept it like it's the core conversation, but you've also the approach is scrappy enough mm-hmm. that it's like you're not you're not concerned about having like a studio space where here we are where like a, you know you are in the presidential suite though yeah right at uh, the Holiday Inn Express a it's, corner view yeah. over uh, California Avenue yeah I'll have to post a picture of this because it's it's. It is probably the nicest hotel room I've ever done this in. So welcome to the luxury suite, the <laughs> nicest studio I've ever been in. Um, you know, it's cool talking to you as well because you and I, I think, well, let me say this. The reason I started the podcast or thought I could get away with like doing a podcast is, is by virtue of, you know, having climbed long enough and hung around with, um, where they go? Just for the hell. That's of probably just the police escort for your next guest. <laughs> like they're they're bringing Honold over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he now has an entourage. Yeah, There's like they... police up front, police in the back, and then a, like yeah, you know, at a place in like Denver. You know, he's got a lot of fans here. Um, I wish Alex come back on the show. So anyway, th- what I was thinking about is that the reason I started this podcast is because I've just been around climbers, and I've been sort of good enough in the sense of. You know, being in the mix, never being a sponsored professional climber, but knowing a lot of people. And that's really what made me decide to, to, that I could do this. Listen to Mark Marin. He's interviewing his friends from being in the industry. I started interviewing friends and I was like, okay, I have a conduit to these famous climbers. And it made me sort of think of you because you're a climber in your own right. You were a dirtbag, came up through the ranks. But part of what you do is being around all these famous people and shooting them. You know, that that's your career. And uh, it gives you like this sort of observant insight. And I feel like myself, some other historian type, you know, like Jeff Smoot was just on. He wrote about basically being around Alan Watts and, and, and the scene and, and observing it. And Dean Fidelman, too, is this 
guy who chronicled the right, scene. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, your position is like giving us these glimpses of these climbers you know, um, I, through, I through mean, your I, camera. I oftentimes get asked that question. You know, people always want to know what's your title. Like everybody likes titles. And it's, you know, the go-to is I'm an adventure photographer. I'm an adventure photographer and filmmaker. And But but in the climbing world, in this, in, I mean, in a sense, holistically what I do for a career is I'm a documentarian. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, like the stuff that the work that has been the most meaningful and the photographs and the adventures i'm i'm documenting adventure and i and now as i look i look in the rearview mirror a little bit and i you know it's hard to use that expression but i realize i've been at this for a long time and you look back and you realize wow some of those adventures some of the you know those shutter depressions or the moments that i pressed record on a on a video camera those are real historical moments now in in climbing history, particularly climbing history. I, I, right. you know, I spend a lot of time in other kind of adventure genres, but climbing is, you know, it's where I started. It's closest to my heart. It's who I am. It's part of who I am, and and it is. It's it's sort of I, you know, I, if I have to put a title, it would almost be adventure photographer, filmmaker, historian. Right. And and I, I don't know. I just grew up. I think reading John Long essays and, you know, kind of, I appreciated the value of a good story. I've always, I've just loved my favorite part of climbing, I think is sitting around a campfire and, you know, weaving yarns and hearing your buddies tell crazy adventure stories and sitting in planes and trains and automobiles and, you know, sharing tales and then having an adventure that you can then share at the next campfire. And I, and photography has always been, it's it's one tool in that storytelling toolbox where it's, you know, one, you need to be able to sit there and just weave a yarn. You need to be able to sit around a campfire and tell a great story and kind of regurgitate the key facts. And, you know, I, I also appreciate that in the climbing world, stories get better over time. Right. They age almost like wine. Right. You know, it's sort of, um, and I, I don't know, early on, I just loved that. Like my very first climbing trip, I was 13 years old and my, my, uh, junior high school PE teacher invited me, invited me to go rock climbing. And my dad was a school teacher. And so he said, yes. And so my brother and I got in a Bob Porter's pickup truck at Quartzville high school. And he whisked us into the Sierra Nevada mountains with another math teacher. And just everything about that experience from the moment we got into the car, you know, got in the car, my dad said, you know, don't do anything dumb. And, and I remember Bob Porter opening like a 40 pack of powdered donuts and he had coffee in one hand and, and a Budweiser in the center console. You know, this, he was like the PE leadership teacher and George was a math teacher. And my older brother was, you know, he's two years older. He's sitting next to me in the back of the truck and the back of the pickup truck was full of climbing ropes and, you know, hexes and, and just the storytelling started. That's the right. next thing I remember. It was the aroma of Seven Eleven coffee powdered donuts and storytelling. And I just, and I fell in love with everything about that first climbing experience, you know, we're at dome rock below the needles and, you know, we're, we're climbing scary bolted routes and it was just mental. It was physical. And like the culture was, I, I got like, I, I guess I connected that very first day. Right. It was sort of, I realized that this, this a part of me, I didn't know what it meant then, but I look back at that very first trip and that was, that was exposure to climbing, but it was also exposure to storytelling mm-hmm. because I sat in that truck and for two and a half hours driving to Dome Rock, I heard story after story. And I, and I now look back and Bob Porter, who was a school teacher, he was a quintessential climber and that he could also tell a damn good story. Right. 
Yeah. Which is key. I think, right? Some of the great, some of the great climbers are also great storytellers. Well, it's almost like, you know, your feats in some way speak for themselves, but it definitely helps, you know, it definitely helps if you can tell the tale of it as well for them to last. I mean, the stone masters are a classic example of that. Like, you know, they basically have this PR agent that's been going at it for 40 years of, of telling the stories of those guys doing those climbs. And it's only, only reason we remember them. No, it's true. I, you know, I go back to that first, climbing trip and i you know I, I just i loved everything about it and then you know every weekend i mean virtually every weekend from that point forward i wanted to go climbing and so you know george and bob became my climbing partners and you know two or three weeks into my kind of you know the the beginning of my climbing lifestyle i realized it was hard to bring just a story back to the playground i mean you know literally i'm standing on like a playground with my buddies in junior high school and I'm telling them stories about, you know, this old quarter incher and I'm out on lead and I'm going to take a huge whipper. And then I realized (laughs) it just, it wasn't connecting. And I thought I need to bring, I need to bring like visual proof back. Right. And so I borrowed my dad's camera (laughs) and uh, my dad was a school teacher and, you know, he, he was a hobbyist of a photographer and I bought, he had a pretty nice camera at the time. And so I borrowed this DSLR or not DSLR, SLR, you know, with interchangeable lenses. And I brought that on, you know, that, that weekend adventure and my photos were just awful. (laughs) They were awful. You know, it turns out it's not just because you have a nice camera, you can make a compelling storytelling photograph. And, and then kind of within like a month long period, two parallel pursuits were born, which was this passion for being outside, having adventures of my own with my friends and this pursuit for storytelling and making compelling, meaningful storytelling pictures. And yeah, they, and they were just, I had no idea at that moment that they just perfectly aligned. Right. It turned out like, you know, each passion fed the other and they just overlapped seamlessly. And I, you know, I just started devouring every bit of information I could on climbing, but also on photography. Uh huh. And so I'd, you know, check out every book at the library about climbing and I'd try to get my hands on all the, issues of climbing magazine, rock and ice magazine. And then I'd be devouring books about photography and, you know, science. and sort of the, the passions grew in parallel. And, you know, finally, I, I had no idea at that moment in time that it would, you know, influence the rest of my life, of course. First of all, yeah, you had a, if it was a, a SLR, you had to, I mean, those things weren't necessarily just easy to use. No. Um, so you had a lot to learn, but that's really an interesting i mean 13 years old and that's a funny image of you like trying to spray down your buddies on the on the uh on the uh playground using jargon you know like that you'd heard in the front seat of that pickup truck who whatever. couldn't care less right. either they had yeah. no idea what i was right. talking right. No. about they just you know a quarter what inch yeah. what a whipper what the you know you're lucky you didn't get punched yeah get beat up right yeah. and don't yeah. be different kid they, like yeah i think they just felt sorry for me probably <laughs> they're like what what is this guy telling? yeah he's 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 already lost his mind well you know 14. the other part of that story and it's funny because i have a parallel Existed. It wasn't with climbing. It just was straight backpacking, um, which was, you know, I was in the Midwest. But I had Wally Sitt, literally, you know, seventh grade PE teacher. Wow. Literally. Wow. wow. No joke. Would run these backpacking trips where you'd go for the weekend with him and another gym teacher in a group and, and go backpacking. And 
it, it was the same experience with, you know, piling into his van. Like from seventh grade on, I already wanted a van in 19... That's I mean, hilarious. In like you already, knew, you oh, already yeah. knew that. And was... he had like a cook box in the back, oh, like proto, awesome. like yeah. a four, brown Ford Econoline, like that rust brown. Yeah. And what he would do, and I know this podcast is about you, but uh, we know how the Enormcast works, so... <laughs> Because this is just really interesting that this is because I talked started this show with talking about parallels, is he would go up and what he would do is there was this little trail system in Wisconsin, and he would drop us off at night, late at night. Like we'd go, we'd leave school after school, we'd drive out there a few hours, we'd have dinner at a restaurant, and then he would drop us off like at ten o'clock at night in the woods, and just be like, "Go that way," and you know the first time that happened to me as a seventh grader, an adult just says peace right like it's Head out. night you don't know where you're going he says follow this trail um was just intoxicating to me and a few other guys and just again like this this and then he kind of had this lore around him because he knew everything about how to survive or how to be out in the woods as a camp and it sounds silly to us as like it sounds like modern Na- climbers, now it but, sounds like navy seal training like, yeah you know yeah, kind yeah, of they're like okay yeah. guys today's our uh well, and we were suspicious. You know, there was rumors like a, like that. It, it's totally fabricated about how like what his past life had been like. You know, but he would, the cool thing was is I found out as a as as I grew up and and got on sort of the other side is that he was t- watching us. Right. Like he would go right. and like stand in the woods and we'd we'd walk right by him. You know, and that's he, great. Though. Yeah, yeah. But it's so, crazy how that changes. Cool but it yeah. changes your. I mean, I, you know, I, I, it changes your world, and it's something I think about a lot now. And I think it comes a little later in life. You know, mm-hmm. now I'm 43, and I talk a lot. I think a lot about, like, paying it forward. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, you know, I always joke that if I weren't a climber, I would be a teacher. Okay. Not joke. I mean, I think I'm if – I, if this photography thing – sorry. If the photography thing didn't work out, I would definitely be a teacher. And I think it's – I look back at what Bob and George and a few other teachers like provided and it's it's what you just described this sort of taking kids and like giving them this opportunity. Mm-hmm. And and I don't think Bob or George understood like what this would mean to me or what, what how that would help shape who I become as an adult and as a person. But I I I do take this just huge pride and joy in kind of standing in front of a small group of folks that are passionate about photography or passionate about storytelling. And kind of just putting it out there because I, someone, I always, I always like to dream. I, I love that someone in that room of 30 or 50 people that I'm speaking to, I hope I like move the needle a little bit for one of them. Mm-hmm. And later they're talking about me in the same way that, that I just talked about my mentors or you're talking about right. your mentor because that's what it takes, right? That's how we're exposed to sort of our, the, the things that change our lives, the biggest passions, the most powerful things in our lives is someone just kind of cracks open the door mm-hmm. and you get a glimpse, you get a whiff of like, for me, it was that 7-Eleven coffee and Dome Rock. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Like, yeah, it, was and, all, and it was all a done deal. He primed me to be a climber because it was like pretty soon where those trails weren't adventurous enough. And, and you know, we got it dialed. And, and he talked, I remember him distinctly, before I knew what the hell he was talking about, talked about climbing at Devil's Lake, hmm. being stuck in a chimney and all this thing. Again, like words yeah. I didn't understand, but... But it definitely, I mean, I, I got a van before I was out of high school. I right. drove it to Colorado, you know, the whole thing. So it's, it is, it's this wild moment where it, it all, all comes together. Let me ask you about your, 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 uh, 
amateur junior photography world. So do you remember, like, you said your first images sucked. Do you remember, like, the first role you developed or the some of the first things you took that you were like, wow, I'm, I'm getting there? Or maybe somebody else recognized yeah, as being you, awesome? Yeah, you know, what I realized pretty quickly was that photography was hard. When you were shooting film on a SLR camera and, you know, I was processing it in a dark room in black and white and i actually realized somehow i i figured out that maybe photographing climbing isn't going to be the easiest way to grow as a photographer so i i actually i just wanted to shoot a lot it was that ten thousand hour rule i didn't know i couldn't have said that to you when right. i was 13 but somewhere inside of me i realized or someone told me you just need to shoot more kid like you suck right. so you need to shoot more your photos are awful so you need to do it more and so i I went down this road of working in the journalism world. So I, I managed to get a job. Now I'm like 16 years old and I get a work permit to work for the Antelope Valley Press. And I had, I had a literature teacher, another teacher that had a huge impact on my life, James Duprat. He was my American lit teacher. And his wife was the managing editor of the newspaper in our little town, the uh, Palmdale, Lancaster, the Antelope Valley and so I end up at the Antelope Valley Press and the director of photography kind of says, you know, hey, kid, you can come in and work for us. And so I borrow my dad's truck and uh, and I get the assignment to shoot the real estate section, which is, you know, back then that was you'd get a list of like 100 houses, like addresses, and you'd drive around town and you'd like the goal was to not get out of the car, but like shoot a picture of a house that's going to go in the like, you know, real estate section. And, but it was a lot like, and it just forced you to like, you know, solve exposure and composition issues. And the funniest part about that job is, you know, I was so pumped. I was so proud of myself. Honnold's heading over to Real Rock, I think. <laughs> He's going to give his talk. There. <laughs> Anyways, That's awesome. Sorry. That's awesome. The, uh. The funniest thing about that job, so, you know, this is a huge deal for me. I have a job at the newspaper shooting, you know, the worst photos in the newspaper. And they issue me like a camera bag with cameras and a radio. And my, my number was photo six on the radio. So the boss. Sort of cool. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I just, I felt like a baller. You know, I was like, I'm like 16. I had press credentials, a camera bag full of gear and a radio and a title photo six. And I am in my dad's pickup truck and I pull out of the parking lot. And the boss tells me, Gene Breckner, he says, if anything goes wrong when you're out there, you immediately call back to the newspaper on the radio. And I, maybe I had a page or two and I pull out of the parking lot. I make it no more than one block and I like rear end the car. <laughs> and my very first transmission back to the newspapers, uh, photo desk, this is photo six. And they're like, go, Corey. I said, I just got in a car accident. <laughs> And I like, you know, there for a minute, and I just felt, I felt so bad. I'm like sweating and I'm just feeling like, well, that's it. That's the end of my, uh, that was like a short lived real estate photo section career. <laughs> but, but, but what really came out of that was, you know, I was doing this work at the newspaper and, and they, they forced me out to shoot photos every day. I'd get like four or right. five assignments and it's like climbing, right? If, I mean, the more you go and you like, you know, try that hand crack and, you know, experiment. It's just, it's that 10,000 hour rule. Mm -hmm. And I just got better and better and better and better. And then it took a while actually before, then I had these almost separated lives where I was climbing in every free moment. Like I loved climbing. 
but then I was shooting photos in the in the newspaper world. And then finally, by the time I got to college, I sort of combined the two. I, they, they sort of kind of reconverged, and I realized, wait, now all of everything I learned about storytelling and photography and the technical aspects, now I should apply it to the thing I care the most about. Because mm -hmm. I, you know, I was shooting everything from like, you know, the dog of the week to the real estate section to the photo of the mayor to the Fourth of July parade, and it's you know, I didn't have, and I didn't care about that stuff. It's not what I was passionate about. But it was it was like doing laps. I mean, that's right. what it was. It was endurance training. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was just going out there and like just doing pitch after pitch, you know, with pressing that shutter button, and that allowed me to kind of hone my eye and hone my skill set. So that by the time I started really photographing climbing, I just had way more experience. I just knew, and this is all pre digital, so it was sort of, you know, it was it was really hard to expose slide film and not screw it up, and it was expensive. Yeah, that was, that's like the. The the roll after roll thing just keeps me thinking that. Like, oh yeah, how expensive it is was to get all that stuff processed. I, you know, I did the math at one point when I was like living in my Honda Civic, driving around the United States taking pictures of climbing, and it was like I think there was a moment where every time I depressed the shutter, it was twenty five cents. Right. Which you know, on a climber's budget and for a kid that like took a semester off from college. That was like a lot of money. I mean, it was a big deal. It was kind of like, how am I going to pay this back? How am I going to, I hope one of these frames is good enough to like pay off this roll of film and the gas that it took to get here. Yeah, but it's like a Ponzi scheme because you're paying off, you know, you're paying for the rolls you haven't exposed yet with <laughs> the right. rolls you exposed or you're trying that's to right. anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, no, that's um, true. I mean, we'll, we'll, let's fast forward to that. Like you said, you, you're in your Civic on a, on a, photographing climbing like yeah. well, how did that sort of start in terms of traveling and sure and you know i'm sure it was like photographing your buddies at first and then you you decided to go out into the world as a as a climbing or adventure photographer yeah you know the way it happened was i as oftentimes happens with sort of the biggest changes in our lives i'm you know 18 years old 19 years old i'm sitting at san jose state university miraculously like I, I was maintaining a decent gpa because i spent like 90 percent of my time in yosemite and you know 10 percent of my time on campus and i was studying journalism and i finally had this realization in my sophomore year that my calling was to be out photographing climbing and you know i was doing it in all of my spare time all of my free time i was photographing climbing what what years were the, what's this by the way, I should give the forward that I'm right. terrible with dates, but I'm guessing Just like 95, yeah. 95 ish, okay, 96. So the 90s. Yeah, yeah, did, yeah, mid to late 90s. Yeah. Did we know each other? I'm amazed that we never crossed paths. Because that's yeah. the years I was yeah. climbing in the valley a lot, but I, I never hung there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I never like, I was a I was a sort of smash and grab guy. And I was of... and I was probably the same. I was never the guy hanging out in camp for right. Okay, me neither. Because so I was, was either it. on a wall shooting photos or I was back in college pretending to be a student. Okay. Yeah. You know, and so I, anyhow, I'm kind of like doing both, managing to maintain a decent GPA. And then I have this epiphany that I need to take a semester off from school. I just need to like go and follow my passion. I need to go and make pictures of climbing. And, I, and I'll never forget going home one Thanksgiving and sitting down with my dad and mom at the table. And I said, Mom and Dad, I have this plan. I'm going to take a semester off from school. And my dad, not being a lawyer, drafted a contract <laughs> that said, you know, he didn't like the idea, but he agreed to allow me to take a semester off. But it said, you will return to college. You know, he made like sign it at the 
at the you know Thanksgiving table, and and the, <laughs> and I and I do remember thinking in my head as I was signing it as I read that last sentence said you will return to college. It didn't say so when you would finish or when. Oh, okay, yeah, that yeah, was it. it would, yeah, yeah. You're, the, you're using the lawyer logic. Yeah, I was it. like you know I was a uh, yeah I, I mean I was I was using like the lawyer logic, but I and so I took a semester off. I bought a Honda Civic. And I bought a hundred rolls of Fuji Velvia film. Velvia. Yep. And the I juice. It was. I mean, it was. It was the <laughs> magic. And I, and I, uh, I loaded my car full of you know camp stove and food and and I think I can't remember. I th- I, I always say that I had like three thousand bucks to my name, but I think I used most of it for film. So I don't. I don't remember the number. Right, right. How much cash I had in my pocket, and I just started driving around the West, and I would pull up to climbing areas, and I would. You know, walk up to the campfire where folks were sitting and I'd say, Hey, I'm, I'm Corey. I'm a photographer. I'd, you know, can I photograph you guys tomorrow? I mean, that was literally, that was my, right. that was my deal. And I would, and I'd always have, I learned early, like had a six pack of beer in my hand and I'd start offering up beers. And I think it was like 99 times out of a hundred. The answer was, yeah, sure. Come on out with us. And I just, it was just fully trial like, I mean, it was learning through trial and error. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember the first couple of shoots that I did. I went to the needles first. I remember that was my very first stop. Oh, you're my, it, biting it off. I just there. went right into it. Yeah. Cool. You it's know, too I, hot to go to J Tree, which would have been a lot easier. Yeah, that's right. I think that's what it was. I, <laughs> yeah. I think it was like a spring semester right. <laughs> that I took off. And I remember I also had a, a super thick static rope that weighed like, you know, 50 pounds when you carried it around. Because I just, I, you know, safety first. But right. I don't I, I have no idea why I had such a thick static. I could barely fit my Jews, Jumars on the static line. It was right. so thick. But I remember the first couple of folks I photographed, you know, I didn't ask anything beyond, can I photograph you? And they'd go out at like, you know, they'd do not stay out late at the fire. And then they'd go out at noon and rock climb. And it just looked awful. You know, it was just terrible photos. And then I had to like kind of switch up my pitch at the campfire, which was, hey, uh, you know, first I'd drink a beer with them and give, you know, hand out some beers. Then I'd tell them what I'm doing. Then I'd ask if they'd let me photograph them. And then I kind of learned the art of kind of convincing them that actually what they want to do is get up at four in the morning <laughs> <laughs> and and hike in in the dark. And then you're going to lead the scariest pitch of your life, but in the best light right, of the day. Right, yeah, yeah, sure. And, and that became, I didn't understand how important that, that kind of art of persuasion really was in this career in that there's a lot of, and, and that doesn't matter whether it's with Alex Honnold or like the guy you met at the campfire. There's a difference between like, there are situations that yield wonderful photographs and there are situations that I don't care who you are, like the most talented photographer on the planet, it's not going to make a great photo. Like climbing at high noon, you know, in like half sun, half shade where their body's cut in half. And so it's this, this, it was like the you know the school of photography for me, climbing photography right. of some things, and there's different situations. It, there's there's being a true documentarian where you show up and whatever's happening, you photograph that expedition, that climb, and and they're authentic, real moments. And then there are moments where it's no coincidence that they're on the side of you know that piece of granite at six a.m. And the sun is in the perfect spot. It's like that. It, usually, it's not coincidence. Right. Usually, there was some persuasive conversation the night before at the campfire sure. to get those folks out right. there. Well, nowadays it's professional. Like they owe you the moment because that's why I saw. I'm like, anytime you see anyone climbing hard in the sun, that, that, that's <laughs> that's a bullshit photo. Mm-hmm. You know, photograph. That's true. That's a really good point. 
Yeah, I mean, it was just a funny thing. You, I just learned pretty early on. I'm driving around in my Honda Civic, and you know, my kind of my my pitch got better. Right. Sort of who I, you know, sincerity was the key. That was the other thing I realized. People, you know, I've, I've been told later that like the thing was I was just this pa- super passionate kid, and like people can feel that. Like you know, when someone approaches you and they're just passionate and they care about what they're doing and they're working hard. And I definitely was that. And then I started to learn what did it mean? How, how do you actually make great photographs? And I, I had this deal with the Modesto B. I interned at the Modesto B while I was in college, another newspaper. And, you know, I was broke. And so I, I would ship every time I'd shoot 10 rolls of film, I'd ship them to the Modesto B and they would process the film for free for me. And then the, you know, the photo department would like gather around the light table, you know, six photographers and the director of photography. And I would call in from a pay phone. This was like before, you know, cell phones, of course. And they would give me like a report on like, how did the film look and critique my photography? They weren't climbers, but they understood like the visual language of what what was compelling and what wasn't. And they love, you know, I have this one memory of I'm standing in a phone booth in like the middle of Utah. And, you know, it's this, I've coordinated, you know, hearing feedback and they've processed my 10 rolls of slide film. And, you know, they get on the phone and they say, Corey, do you want the good news or the bad news first? And I say, oh, man, I, I guess the bad news first. And they say, look, all your film is black. And, you know, like literally like tears come to my eyes because that's like two weeks worth of being on the road and like serious blood, sweat and tears and early starts, you know, and then the long pause. And they say, we're just kidding. We're just kidding. <laughs> and then they would give me like real feedback. Right? Right. You know, they would say like, you know, look, we're seeing... Um, you know, some technical stuff, like I think there's sand and, you know, there's dirt scratching one of your cameras. You need to clean that out. But then they would give real creative feedback, right. like, man, the photographs of climbing, like the figures in the landscape, awesome. Like you're getting that. Some of that, you know, top down, peak action, fantastic, like great moments. But we're not seeing any of the lifestyle that surrounds, like, wow. what do you guys do in between climbs? That's and, good you know, these are Yeah, and these were yeah. journalists. You know, that's these bread are, and butter now. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, that was, and I think that feedback, you know, I think early in my career, those, turns out those are the pictures that were sort of the most important and maybe moved the needle the most for me. It was those lifestyle pictures, the journalistic, you know, documentary style photographs right. um, of you know, like I always say that climbers like to believe that we climb all the time. We spend way more time talking about climbing and bullshitting about climbing and, you know, reliving what we just climbed and talking about what we're going to climb right. and killing time around the campfire. And so I, I really made a point of shooting a lot of that. It was sort of those gritty, raw, authentic photographs of climbing culture. And honestly, that set of pictures, I think, kind of advanced i think that's the set of pictures that allowed me to do this for a living yeah i mean i I was i have a question for you so it's the mid 90s you were talking about epperson yeah you know so who else is like got the the climbing photography thing on lock at that point i mean greg was my hero greg epperson of course he like greg wrote the book on you know he, he established the bar Right. For like, this is what a great photograph looks like, a great climbing photograph. Jim Thornburg was sure. right there. I mean, Jim was also, is just an incredibly talented guy. Brian Bailey was still in the world at that moment. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know Brian. Yeah, yeah. He lived yeah. in Carbondale. He, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, I feel like lives. it was... Yeah, I think it was, he was up in Missouri Heights, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, Brian and Greg and Jim, awesome, you know, all of them just superstars. They were like my role models. Galen was a role model as well, Galen Rowell. But I think Galen was much more on the... 
you know, he was the, um, I think he was like a generation before Greg and, and, um, and Jim and Brian. And he's got great climbing photographs, a lot of them historical, but yeah. I, he's I like a landscape his, guy. Yeah, yeah. The big mountain right. landscapes yeah. was like really where he, his sort of yeah. legacy is, I think. And, and I, I mean, later I want to come back to talking about Tom Frost because I, you okay. know, when people ask, I mean, Tom Frost was like my true hero as a photographer. I mean, Tom, and I didn't figure that out until like later in life, like in my adult, you know, later in my life, I sat down with Tom Frost and, and edited Tom's work. Like I went to his house and Tom laid out like his binders of images. And I had this sort of like magical experience with Tom where I, I started, I mean, I look at a lot of photography. I mean, I look at hundreds of portfolios a year and you know, my takes and the takes of other photographers. And I sat down and looked at Tom's work once in his, in his office in uh, Oakdale. I think it's Oakdale was outside of Yosemite. You know, Tom being an engineer by trade, he had his, all of his work super organized. And I sat down with the loop and Joyce, his then wife and, uh, and Tom, you know, I'm looking through the loop and, and I, you know, I go to pay, you know, first page of this binder and I'm going through and Every photo is like incredible. Some of them are like the iconic photographs and in between the iconic photographs are like images that should be the iconic photographs that the world has never seen. And I make it through like a few pages of the binder, you know, I'm comparing the context sheet to the negative and I'm going back and forth. And I, and I, at one point I just casually say to Tom, Tom, how did, how, like, how long had you been shooting photographs? Like, how did you, these are like incredible photographs. And Tom's confused by my question, and I, I re-ask it in a different way. And, and Tom says, "No, that that's my first set of photographs." Right, right. I was about and, to, yeah. And I, they're in order, and from yeah, the they're beginning. in order. Right. Like it's it's literally like the first photograph is a freaking classic. You know, right. maybe there's one out of focus frame of his foot or something first, right? And then the next one is like a classic frame in Camp Four of like everybody at a table sorting pitons, and. And I'm, and and he finally says, no, I just, you know, I borrowed a camera that morning in camp four because we were going to go up on El Cap. And then, you know, I spend the next six hours at his house, like looking through his photography. And, and I realized Tom Frost might've been the most naturally gifted photographer period that I've ever met. Okay. Period. Like outside of, I mean, it's, which is just unbelievable. Like later Tom and I sat and had lunch that day and, you know, I kept on trying to get back at that question of. Maybe he just missed. Maybe he, like he's just not acknowledging his experience with a camera or seeing, and it's just that that's the reality. Like Tom just had this gift, and I and I guess I say this because you know folks will oftentimes point at Galen Rowell as sort of the you know grandfather of adventure photography. I think I think like Tom Frost came before Galen. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's pictures that Galen mimicked, that Greg mimicked, that Brian mimicked, that Jim has mimicked, that I've mimicked. It's like. We're all standing on Tom Frost's shoulders when it comes to, you know, that what a great climbing photograph looks like. I mean, it's sort of amazing what, what the guys in the golden age of, of Yosemite climbing did with cameras, but they don't get credit for it. And yeah. that's, so, you know, I say that because you ask who were my heroes. You know, when I was a kid, it was, it was Greg Epperson, Jim Thornburg, um, Brian Bailey. But then as I got older, I sort of realized Oh, wow. Actually, it was Tom Frost. Like, Tom was the guy. Tom was like, Tom was the Jedi master. He was, you know, he was like the guy that I think we all now look at as he was just a, he was a, the most gifted photographer and a pioneer of climbing. Yeah. Just a fantastic human. What's your, uh, what's sort of the inspiration from like Glenn Denny? 
you know, I never was as close to Glenn. Mm-hmm. I mean, his work, I put him in the same category. Right. And I've never sat down and talked with Glenn. I guess what always has blown me away about Tom is he never like considered himself a photographer. Right. I mean, that's, I think, and I think I've read enough from Glenn. I think he considered himself a photographer. Oh, yeah, no. Like, he took it seriously. Sure. And, you know, it's kind of, I don't know what to compare it to. Tom Frost was like a 514 photographer, you know. Right. Back then. And, but he, he never considered himself a photographer. And that, that's, that's extraordinary. You know, the rest of us, myself, you know, the the next generation, the guys before me, we took it seriously and Mm -hmm. we consider, you know, we consider ourselves storytellers. Tom didn't. Right. And yet he was as good or better than He's all like of the us. Taoist yeah. photographer. Yeah, that's right. it. Yeah. 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 He, yeah. So I don't know. That was a tangent. No, but. no, it's a great tangent. And, and it's interesting because, you know, I brought up Glenn Denny because, you know, we talk about the golden age and I sort of made this half joke about how the, the Stonemasters had a PR person, which is why we know about them. But, you know, and, and this speaks to the, I think, the, the nature, uh, sort of a philosophical part of photography is that to us, the golden age, what it looked like is those two plus Galen Rowell and, and, a, and a few other people. You know, that's it. I mean, it's like the rea- it, like it creates the reality of what we see from that era. Do you know it's, what I mean? Yeah, of course. It is the reality because it's all we have. Right. And so it's like... You know those shirts off dudes with the with their beaners out and their pins laid out, and you know those images fill up you know a ten year period of activity. Yeah, and there's like really like twenty or thirty of these photographs that create the golden That's age right. for us. What What's amazing to me is that I look at that set of imagery, whether Tom Frost created it, Glenn Denny, Galen Rowell, and what they did, like what they created, that style of image, those gritty, raw, authentic photographs, it's what we still aspire to create. I mean, that's that's what we go out and try to create. And when we create an image that's as raw and as alive as the photo of the guy sitting at the you know table in Camp Four, that's a huge success. And it's so it's it's fascinating that I I those aren't easy moments to create. I guess that's my point. Those aren't, those aren't easy moments to capture. And so to look back, what, 50 years at this point, and those images are still, they're still kind of the, the benchmark for what are we trying to achieve? I mean, you know, those are the photographs in my career. When I create something that feels that authentic, that is that authentic, that's that real, that tells a story in a single photograph, that's a huge success. Uh And so to see that, you know they had they had that vision fifty years ago, and we're we're standing on their shoulders. Like uh-huh. we're we're trying to we're trying to build on that. And you know, I think the expectations higher today. I think it's you know, you, you, as a professional, you don't come back with a single image or right. three images from a trip. It's like you better be able to fill a catalog and right. billboards, and you know, you there, there's a big demand, and you need variation and verticals and horizontals because the web needs a horizontal and the Instagram needs a vertical, and but. Um, you know that, but it's that level of authenticity is what we're still striving for, right? The so going back to where we left on the tangent, yeah, uh, which was fine because I started it with asking about your inspirations. The reason I wanted to know is because as you were talking about the the lifestyle photos, okay, so this is back to your your you, you've got these guys telling you like that's really cool, right? You know, it made me think that um, I don't 
really recall a lot of that uh, in the magazines in this era and from necessarily Greg and Jim. Um, and then, but then you reminded me that that was where it started with, with, with Frost with these, but do you know what I mean? Or am I wrong about that? Is that just, am I losing it in my mind? Cause all the iconic in my mind, uh, like Epperson images are just very stark color contrast. You know, he's yeah. very good at getting the color differences and stuff and just very athletic, a lot of very athletic photos. And then we all, you know, we know what Jim liked to shoot. So, um, but <laughs> <laughs> just those you know athletic inc- you know awe inspiring you know upside down right you know types of things or, or am i not no no I, no i well. think those are still i mean those are the iconic images but when i look at you know what what separated me i think from the pack you know because i i never considered myself as a guy that was like competing with jim or greg or brian at all i mean they were like my heroes but i do realize that you know, so I, I come back from the six months on the road. You know, my dad made me sign the contract. I went back to college and I'm sitting at San Jose State University. And I bought a light table and I had like 100 rolls of film and I edited those 100 rolls of film down to, I think it was like 40 of the best climbing photos I sent to Climbing Magazine and 40 of the best lifestyle images I sent to Patagonia. And I had read like an article in some photography magazine that said like, look, and it's called an unsolicited submission. No one knew who the hell I was, nor did they right. want those photos. And I, but I paid like twelve dollars a FedEx envelope, and I shipped, you know, the climbing submission, and I shipped the Patagonia submission, and and but the little article said, you know, you're going to ship it off, and and three or four months later, you're going to get a letter with all of your slides back that says, "Thanks, pal, keep your day job." Yeah, yeah. And I was prepared for that. It was fine. I'm like a college student, and but I took like great pride and like editing these pictures it was six months of like being on the road the best six months of my life like i had tasted it like this is all i wanted but there was zero validation except for my you know six friends at the modesto b that occasionally like told me i shot a nice frame and the next day i'm sitting in my dorm room and the phone rings and uh you know i answer it like any college student what's up you know thinking it's like my buddy down the hall and it's an adult voice. And she said, it's Corey Richin. And I, of course, I had no option but to, uh, yeah, hang on. And I, Corey. And then I, you know, of course, I'm, <clears throat> hello, hello, this Corey. Yeah. <laughs> hello, yes. <laughs> and, and in my head, I'm thinking, which which faculty member is this? And what did I do wrong? Like, what <laughs> Like what else could this be? My Like, my world was so narrow. Yeah. <laughs> and and I'll never forget. She said, hey, this is this is Jennifer Ridgway at Patagonia. And she said, is this Corey? And I said, yeah, this is Corey. And she said, who are you? And I, <laughs> and I was so confused by, you know, I'm sort right. of like, oh, was it the what's up answer? Right, like, right. You know, did she figure me out? <laughs> and then she went on to say a few complimentary things. She said, you know, we just got this submission and there's 40 photographs and like, you know, there's some really nice stuff in here. And, and, uh, and she said, gosh, we'd like to use a few of them in our next catalog. And I, you know, I was just so naive. I had no idea what that meant. And now, now to put it in perspective, I had just worked like all summer at a newspaper to save 3000 bucks to drive around the country in my Honda Civic. And she said, you know, we're going to use a couple of these photos if it's okay. And, and I, and then she threw out a number. It's like, you know, it's $3,000 a photo. And, you know, like, I, I mean, I, I think I might've fallen out of my chair and like had to stand back <laughs> at up. least drop the bomb. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like beer cans <laughs> flying off the, yeah. And I, <laughs> and I, and it was like, 
you know, one, it was the very first validation. It was someone, it was, you know, sort of like, it was Jennifer Ridgway, Rick Ridgway's wife, the, the director of photography at Patagonia saying, these are good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm a kid that grew up looking at like three publications, National Geographic, Climbing Magazine, and the Patagonia catalog. And like, you know, this was sort of one of the three gods just called and said, this is decent stuff. Like you have decent photography. And, and then on top of that, they were going to pay me for it right? and pay me like three X what I made working at the newspaper the summer before. Right. And it was pretty much like that, that day, that phone call pretty much changed my world. It was sort of like I, you know, I went out and bought another hundred rolls of film. I like advanced the film. I, you know, that check might not show up for months, Yeah, but like I... I kind of like at that moment, my GPA, it was almost like a direct correlation. I started getting published a lot. My GPA went down in Mm -hmm. direct proportion to just getting and going on trips. literally studying photography? I was studying journalism. Oh, journalism. and mass communication. Studying might be a stretch. Right, right. Yeah. I was, yeah, I was attending the journalism. You paid money to, I don't know, for the dorm room. Yeah. Somebody had. Yeah, my mother and father. (laughs) And then the next day, so then the next day I'm sitting in, you know, now I'm super savvy when the phone rang. And so the next day the phone rings and I say, hello, this is Corey. And, uh, And it was Jeff Aki at Climbing Magazine. He wasn't as complimentary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was no flowery language. <laughs> but but he did say, you know, he said, hey, look, um, I think he might have actually, I'm, hey, pal, um, one of your pictures is, uh, we're, we're considering it for the magazine. Yeah. Um, and he wanted, like, some captions. And, like, it, I mean, it, the conversation was brief. It was like, I answered the question. I heard the wind of the telephone, like, as he put it down. It was like, whoom, whack. And, and uh, two months later... Um, one of my photographs was on the cover of climbing magazine and it was, and it was, uh, the photograph of a young Danish climber bouldering in the, in the, um, happies huh. in a bikini top. Yeah. And, and that was so like kind of the Patagonia catalog came out and that cover of climbing magazine came out and Dwayne Raleigh has since told me that that was the best selling cover, best selling issue of a climbing magazine in the history of the world. Yeah. It, it, yeah. it uh, I remember the photograph burned in many of many a young man's psyche. Yeah. Um, but also it was very controversial because of like, you know, the sex sells kind of right. like oh, nature yeah. of it. And that's it was, why, I mean, it, it worked. I always, I always joke that, um, I think, you know, it was, a, it was a great photograph because of the way I used the light. And oh, absolutely. The composition. Yeah. Yeah. No, but it's shadows. No, no, falling it was, upon. <laughs> It was definitely, and by the way, Ricky is like the most extraordinary human that I've ever met. She's an attorney for the Red Cross in Denmark. She's she's actually like saving the world. She's out, right, out there right, actually right, right. doing. But it was, you know, it was honestly one of those scenarios where we're we're at the Happy Boulders. You know, this is now this is a long time ago. I should look at the date on that magazine cover. That would be a good like time stamp. And it was super hot, and it's you know all the guys had their shirts off, and Ricky being you know a Dane. She's like, well, if you're taking your shirts off. I'm taking off my hot. It's, it's super hot. Right. And, you know, I snapped a few frames. Frankly, it wasn't even like a great setup for photography. And at 25 cents a frame, I was like very conscious of like, I don't even know if this is worth shooting. Right. And, um, but it turns out that was like my, my first cover. And, uh, uh, off of your first submission. Very first submission. Yeah. yeah. The Patagonia submission, like three images go in the catalog. And what, what's amazing about that Patagonia submission, I think back now to like, I think it's just luck and like a hell of a lot of hard work. Every single one of those 40 images that I submitted, 
every one of them got used over like the next decade. Jesus, and it, man. And it kind of blew the, – the, the only – there was this huge pressure, though. That first phone call with Jennifer Ridgway, Jennifer, you know, she's like, who are you? And I, and I guess I, I figured it out on the phone. What she was asking was, this is a solid submission, but we've never heard your name before. We don't know who you are. How did – like, where did this come from? Right. And then on one hand, there was this huge celebration of, like, validation. Like, wow. Like, someone loved the photography. At another level, it was like – damn, I hope I can do this again. Right. I hope that wasn't like my one hurrah. And now it's like, yeah, God, can I repeat that? Uh-huh. And, but obviously photography is something where it's just, it's just time. Right. Like you just, you just need time out there making pictures. You need, you know, you can't, you can't schedule it. Like yeah. Gotta, well, also to like, just to put it into perspective, because it's uh, 2019, you know, and it's been the age of digital photography for a long time and, and the internet what we're talking about, the, the Patagonia catalog, not just for photographers, but for everyone, was like a celebrated experience when it showed up at your house. And, you know, it was this repository of adventure photography that was super important. Because, there, I mean, you know, you submitted the climbing, you submitted it. Rock and Ice probably didn't exist yet. or it was, I can't remember. Was it just, I, I think it was, but, you know, it's so confusing yeah. because... Because they switched. Yeah, yeah, everyone switched. But nevertheless, climbing, I mean, there wasn't like a million places to put your photographs like there is now. No. And so really, I mean, you like hit the top of the heap with those those two things because that's what it was. And I remember, you know, even as a climber, if you got, and is this the same? I don't even know anymore. But like if you were in your photograph, we got, a climber got like a $100 gift certificate. For being in the photograph, because Greg went on a trip to the to the Circle um, the Unclimbables, I went or I went on a, gre- a trip with Greg, and uh, ended up in there, you know. So it's like hundred right. bucks, which Patagonia gets you like one sock. No, or no, I th- I, yeah, yeah, I think they still do that. Yeah, yeah okay, right, cool, yeah. yeah. So, but it, it, it <laughs> just be, because of the <laughs> because of the um, the internet, like it's sort of and digital photography. You know, I don't know where you lament any of this, but it's it's definitely. Um, diluted this, like, the importance of this catalog. Right. Like, the catalog right. itself was, like, you know, the yearly uh, best photogra- best climbing photography in the world. Yeah. And it showed no, up no. at your door. It, it, well, yeah. I, I t- that's how I grew up. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. It has changed, I will yeah. say. And, I, you know, when I made the comment about Dwayne Raleigh telling me that it was the best-selling issue of, of a climbing magazine ever, part of that was the photograph and just, you know, sort of, it, you know, it, was, it just did well. Part of it was that was the beginning of print dying. I mean, right. that was that was the reality. Like, part of it was, you know, we were 20 years out from Instagram. And, like, right. we had, you know, what was the – just social media became a reality. The internet became a reality. And so I don't know – I don't actually know if the Patagonia catalog – I know it doesn't have the same impact in my life. Right. I mean, it's sort of – um. You know, there's just so much noise now. Yeah, totally. Yeah. No, I mean, I can say the same thing. It yeah. shows up. You're like, oh, cool. Yeah, right. yeah. And I feel that way about magazines. I mean, I hate to say it. I wish I didn't feel this way. You know, I get a copy of National Geographic and I might flip through it. Rock and Eyes, I might flip through it. It's like, you know, everything that I get, it's all digital. Like everything that I see, it's like it's, if it surfaces to the top of my feed, then I should look at it. And it's not that I don't care. It's just, you know, times have changed. Well, yeah. And, and, it, and it's like, a, you know, a couple of grandpas talking here, but, you know, <laughs> the importance of the arrival of, of those magazines, any any guest that I talk to that's my age or a little older, or older, um, 
you know, the importance of these magazines to climbing culture was everything. They were climbing culture in the United States, climbing and then followed by rock and ice. Um, and they just aren't anymore. They're yeah. just not, they're just not anymore. You yeah. know, and it was a strange thing because you know somebody like Michael Kennedy who's running climbing, um, bef- you know, before Jeff, but they, you know, those editors, the editors at these magazines, really could set the tone of a climbing culture by their decisions about what was going on in those magazines, and therefore your photographs as photographers at that time, and you you know, you rode the shoulder over into digital. You guys, Greg, before you, Jim, you guys set the tone of climbing culture sure, as well with, sure. with the photographs, you know? Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. I think back to the impact of working for the magazines, editorials, right. you know, in the, in the photography trade, we'd call it editorial. And, um, you know, I, I was a kid in college and I, after that first submission to Jeff Aki, Jeff, he had, he called back a few days later and he said, hey, can I get your fax number, buddy? And, you know, so I, I, I said, I didn't have a fax number. I said, I don't know it off the top of my head, so let me call you back. And I went to, like, Staples and bought a fax machine and hooked it up in my dorm room. And and Jeff wanted that fax machine number because they would send a needs list for the next, like, issue of the magazine. So it was every story they were going to tell, and they were asking, you know, photographers to, like, ship in their slides. But I was, you know, 19 years old in college, 20 years old. And so I, I interpreted that very differently. I, you know, I, I would get a fax and be, this is the next issue of rock and ice. It's like feature story on Yosemite feature story on, you know, devil's tower feature story on, you know, Cirque of the unclimbables. And I would look at my calendar and I'd say, how many of these places can I go to in the next 30 days before the deadline and make pictures of, and I'd get in my Honda civic and I'd buy another hundred, you know, my ratio of like film that I would shoot, it was going way up. Like now I would shoot like a hundred rolls of film in like, you know, three weeks and I would just drive to all of the areas and then I'd put together a massive submission of photos and ship it to Jeff or, um, or, you know, climbing and rock and ice. And, uh, and I'll never forget once Dwayne Raleigh called me and I started getting published a ton. It was like all of a sudden, you know, I had a feature story in every magazine or cover on, you know, one or the other. And at one point Dwayne called and he said, and I'm, you know, I'm confused. Like, you went from like a guy that we had never seen your name. We'd never published any of your photos. Do you have like a third of every magazine we publish? Where did this archive of work come from? And of course me being like a naive college kid, I said, what do you mean? You guys send me a list of like everything to go out and shoot. And Dwayne, like Dwayne's a really smart guy. And Dwayne like paused for a second. Then he laughed and he said, wait, so you just go out and shoot (laughs) everything on the list? And I said, yeah, isn't that how that works? (laughs) And, <laughs> but that, and that was it. Like, because I had nothing, you know, it was either that or you're like an unpaid staff photographer, <laughs> totally, basically. Totally. And it was like that or going to my psychology class. <laughs> and so I, I just shot a ton. And then of course that opened the door to then Dwayne and, and Jeff and everyone would listen to like, what, you know, what story do you want to do? Right. And it led to pitching stories and, right. and getting assignments to go and do projects. But it was sort of, you know, I don't know. I always say that like time having time and having that commitment and willingness and, and, and the wherewithal to pull it off, like the financial wherewithal today, that financial wherewithal is a lot easier, right? You know, it's a a digital camera and not, you know, shuttered depressions that are film and processing. Were you, were you someone that held out on film or did you get on board? Well, you know, cause I know a lot of people did and, um, and even Jeff speaking of Jeff hockey, you know, like, the magazine did. I know they the climbing magazine right. kind of like held, 
you know, held the slide, yeah, yeah, like at much higher esteem for way longer than they probably should have. But no, I mean, I've I've always been a guy. I'm not the guy that wants to be like right on the edge of the floor. I don't want to be on the front end right. of like using new technology. But for me, it's just about the pictures. It's mm-hmm. about the stories. Like I'm. You know, if you want me to, I'll shoot it on whatever you whatever want. Whatever tech yeah, is going to totally. work. Yeah, it's like, I, yeah, the tech is secondary to me. I just want, I want a super reliable camera that when I press that shutter, it's going to work. And do what you, what totally. you see. Totally. That's the... it. No, I think digital photography has raised the bar. I yeah. Mean, we're seeing, in the climbing world, a great example, we're seeing infinitely better still photography because of digital cameras than mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. Because you get instant feedback. I mean, it's, you know, slide film, it was, you know, you'd go on an expedition, you'd come home with 100 rolls of film, ship it to the lab. Three weeks later, you'd realize, oh, man, I screwed that up. Something was wrong. Ugh, the, the now scra- when you mentioned the scratch. Oh, fuck, yeah. that's so brutal. Yeah. I remember yeah, the scratches. Or a black roll. Yeah. Oh, those were the worst. Yeah. <laughs> those were the worst. Because I'd go on a trip, you know, to Australia or whatever with 10 rolls. Right. And that's your whole trip, right? And you're, and you're create, trying to create memories, and like, fuck, you get home and like, <laughs> you pop, you accidentally pop the back open, or you didn't uh, even know it. It's, uh, it's the worst. Yeah, it's like we're again, we're talking about things that nobody even knows yeah. about. Yeah, it's. But, I mean, th- th- the weirdest thing to me, Chris, is I feel like it's still like I have to remind myself that I'm I'm not a kid anymore. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're just so lucky in this world of of climbing and, and I, I, you know, I pinched myself. I feel like I found two things that I loved, which was being outside specifically climbing and taking pictures. And what's crazy to me is like those stories of shooting, you know, Ricky at the happy boulders. It just feels like yesterday. It doesn't feel like 30 years past, 20 years past. And I don't know. I, I think that's a healthy thing. I right. mean, I've, I lose track of time, but it's like when I talk about film, film is like this, you know, it's just sort of a, a byproduct of the time, but the stories still feel like yesterday. Right. Like I have a, I have a really hard time differentiating something that happened five years ago and something that happened 20 years ago. If I really like pinpointed, right. I can kind of decipher that like, ah, oh, that was, that was, you know, I wasn't married. Yeah, I you're not a kid. Idiot. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not an idiot. Just but the feeling of it. Yeah. I mean, it's sort I think of emotional quality of the time. It's the power of what we do. Right. It's the power of p- being passionate about climbing mm-hmm. and passionate about storytelling it makes these experiences timeless. Yeah. And it's like, I, you know, I, I just find myself doing that a lot where I bump in, you know, I just was walking around at the trade show and you bump into people and, and I, and I'm looking at, you know, a guy that I've spent tons of time with traveling around the world and, and he looks old and I realize, damn, I'm old. Too. <laughs> How did this man, happen? That motherfucker looks old. Yeah. Yeah. He looks old. Then I, then <laughs> I have terrible. To, then I remember like, Oh, I do too. <laughs> I look old and terrible. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> poor guy <laughs> what happened to him um, <laughs> glad we never met before yeah, pretty yeah, much yeah. you have nothing to judge me by um, <laughs> I've always looked like this as far as you know um, poor guy but uh, I wanted you know you, you, you're talking about a little bit of, you said something about the death of print yeah. um, and we were talking about you know movement to digital and, and social media but, you know, here you are. One of the reasons we ended up hooking up now um, was because of a book coming out. Uh, so, yeah, let's just talk about that. We've been, we've been, we've been at it for a while here. So yeah. let's talk about this book because so many of the things you've been talking about, in my mind, 
dovetail into what this book is about. Sure, so sure. yeah, tell me the concept. Well, I'm, I'm super excited. I, so in September, a I book. Have, uh, yeah, a book is a coming piece of, out. A stack of papers that's stuck right. together that's by right. glue. That's right. Now yeah. I will say in the foreword to this book, which is called Stories Behind the Images, it's it was really important to me that it was a soft cover book. Okay. And I want people to treat it like a magazine. I mm-hmm. want them to like put it in their backpack. I want them to put it in like the pocket in the front of the airplane seat and read it, put it on the back of the toilet. Like I, there, there are 53 essays in the book and they're, they're individual photographs. And I tell stories about those photographs. And oftentimes the, there are stories about the people in those photographs. Um, they're the, they're the kind of anecdotal tales from the field. Oftentimes they're self-deprecating um, with, you know, hopefully a life lesson in there. But I'm very honest about my mistakes and fumbles along the way. Um, and, and the friendships and, and the, the losses, frankly, along the way with a little bit of technical stuff mixed in a little bit of how to mixed in. And it's, and they're not in the book and stories behind the images. I didn't want it to be a portfolio of my, here's my 50 greatest hits. It's some of the pictures aren't that great. Like some of them, they're all solid, but they're not like the best photographs, but there's always I hope a good story behind the photographs because at the end of the day, you know, we started this podcast by talking about, you know, storytelling and, you know, that's my real passion. It's being outside and it's telling stories. I, I use the medium of, of still photography and video to tell those stories. Um, but this is a pretty word heavy book. This It's a 200 and some odd 280 something page book with real essays that, uh, you know, I hope some of them make you laugh and I hope some of them make you cry I never intended it for to be a memoir, but it's a bit of a memoir. Like right. it's a bit of like, you know, you can't help, but if you tell stories about photos shot over the last 30 years, you know, it turns into, um, you know, some pretty good tales and it kind of spans my, my adult life and my career. What you mentioned, you know, walking into, uh, to Tom Frost's house, looking at his portfolio and just being blown away by all these these pictures and images sorry pictures photos images what are we yeah images yeah images the only the only one that's hard like for photographers the one is shots shots that's the one where that's the one where greg epperson would (laughs) but it's you know images photography photographs that's all that's all that's all pc you've got i mean i don't you you have servers full of yeah photos you have you have somewhere in your house are file cabinets full of slides right so 53 photos like what the hell how did that happen how did you do that it turns out it turns out it's really hard to make great photos i mean i you know it's like i um you know that maybe i might have been the most successful in that first six months on the road i took 100 rolls of film and i submitted 80 pictures and a bunch of them got used the, the more ratio I, never yeah, the, met the that ratio did, yeah, yeah yeah it turns out that was like the high points of my whole career it's been all downhill <laughs> right. since then now it requires like 100 rolls of film to make one great photo but no i mean you honestly you know you look back at at you know 10 years 20 years 30 years of photography and it's really hard to make those special moments it's, it's you know look it's the jim collins wrote a book jim obviously being a climber right um and a, and a, also an incredible human being but Jim wrote a book, Good to Great. And I think good to great, that philosophy applies to a lot of things in life, including photography. I can go out and make good pictures all the time. Right. Like, consistently. I'm a pretty consistent. I can make good pictures. Making great pictures, that's hard. Right. That's hard. It's really hard to make great pictures. So 
you know, it's, it's actually a little sad when you put it that way. It's like, wait, so there's 50 pictures at the yeah. end of your, <laughs> you're that's halfway it. through your career and there's 50 pictures. That's it. That's all you got, man. <laughs> um, no, it's just, it's, you know, it's, and, and like you said, a few of them aren't even that great. Yeah, 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 exactly. So it's really 42. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> no, I, th- I think the reality is it's, you know, it definitely it could be a much larger book. There's right. a lot of other pictures that I love. But the process of coming up, not every picture has a great story behind it. Right. You can have a wonderful picture, a great picture that's not a storytelling photograph. Sure. Or that there's not a great story behind that photograph. And so that was, it was, it was pretty cerebral, the process of going through images and really, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about photographs and trying to decide, is there a solid enough story behind this image? Or is it, it not enough? Or wrote it and it wasn't? Or yeah, like you that. start yeah. like riffing on it. You start kind of, you know, doing, bull, you know, you just brainstorm on the on the image and you spend a half an hour, an hour, and you realize, nah, that's not going to hold water. Right. Or it's I was, too I was similar just wor- to- I was just working that day. To, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or it's, or it's, yeah, there's just nothing memorable. Right, like, right. Yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, for me, the process is very much, I spend a lot of time, um, I find I'm like the most creative when I'm walking or riding my bike. And so I'll off, you know, in the, in developing this book project, I would look at pictures, think about a picture, you know, have three or four. And then I would go out for like a two hour bike ride or a two hour hike. And I would just sort of be in my own world thinking, you know, and I'd discipline myself to sort of for 30 minutes, I'm going to think about this photo. 30 minutes, I'm going to think mm-hmm. about the next photo. 30 minutes. And then I'd land on, okay, this one has the best story. And then oftentimes, maybe not on the same bike ride, uh, the next day I'd go out for another mountain bike ride or I'd be traveling, sitting in an airport, you know, lounge or in a hotel lounge or sitting in a tent, whatever the case may be. And then I would use a voice, just my iPhone to voice memo. I'd tell the story like I was sitting around a campfire. And this is kind of like going back to that very first trip with my, you know, high school teacher, junior high school teacher. It's like that skill of, of telling a story. And I would pretend I'm sitting with folks around a campfire and I would just tell my story for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes into an iPhone. And, you know, I've, I've thought this through in my head of, you know, I've given it thought, but instead of penning it, I would tell it to the iPhone. I would, as though that was my audience. Um, and then I worked with your good friend, Andrew Bisharat, who's, an in- incredibly talented. I always say one of the most gifted, fast writers on the planet. You know, I, I think he has, you know, he's, he just has a higher IQ than the rest of us. Mm-hmm. And, and then I would send my voice, I'd, I'd send my campfire tale to Andrew and Andrew would, you know, sometimes verbatim, but sometimes with like his, you know, he would do some wordsmithing on the first kind of transcription of the, of the story. And then we'd go back and forth a few times and that would become the essay. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was kind of a fun process, actually. Did I, you have any another editor that could yay or nay a, a photo and a story? No, it's kind no. of just Matt. I mean, I'm sorry. It was just Andrew and I. Okay. We, at one point, we, we had Matt Samet do a pass copy editing. Right. Um, and then, then but we he, t- he wasn't going to say this no, photo's got to no, go. Or- no, probably not. Okay. I mean, I guess there were moments in the process of getting down to those 53 photos. We might have had like 70 at okay. one point. And I think we, I did shop it around my office and kind of got everyone's two cents and, um, you know, sort of people loved certain images, didn't like other images, but it was more complicated. You had to it's, fire like two people. Yeah. A couple yeah, people right. lost their jobs. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, but it, you know, it was, it was, it's tough. It's not just about the photograph because it's, and like I said, some of the photographs, they might not be the greatest photographs, but the story's really good. Oh, Honold must be going to a dinner appointment God, now. Yeah, that guy gets around. <laughs> oh, that was dinner. Now he's going to the Real, <laughs> Real Rock, Rock screening. We'll see him later. <laughs>
That's pretty funny. <laughs> Can I tell you one Honold story, whether it makes it or not? Yeah, yeah, do it. I was just thinking when he said his mom was here earlier today. The the uh, I was I was shooting in Yosemite. This is you know ten years ago, and I was I was actually like chasing a girl. Like I I was wasn't dating, and there was this super cute girl from Sacramento, and I was I followed her to the pizza deck, and her girlfriend was kind of hanging out with Honold. But I, no one knew Honold's name at the time. And I'm sitting at the pizza deck and Alex and I all of a sudden are like forced to talk to each other. And, you know, Alex being like a genius, he sort of knew my, I said, Hey, I'm Corey. And, you know, I had like a camera sitting on the table and he said, Oh, you're, you know, immediately he's like, you're Corey Rich. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm a photographer. And I said, what do you guys do today? And Alex, Alex said, uh, I dragged, I forgot what her name was. I dragged her up Astro Man. It was like super boring. I, I mean, just like that. That's how I said I dragged her up Astro Man. It was super boring. Like right in front of her. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she was like half talking to this, you know, to <laughs> to her girlfriend. And um, and I'm, you know, and this like at the, at the moment in time where I'm like, I know all of the greatest climbers. Like, I, I mean, I don't know you. Like, I, I but, and, I'm, and I immediately in my head, I think you're either like the next freaking superstar or you're just completely full of shit. <laughs> And I asked him, we have like a 10 minute conversation. I thought I masked like my, the look on my face. I thought I masked what I was thinking pretty well, you know, because in my head I was thinking, yeah, this guy's just full of shit. Like he just, he went on to say a few other things where I thought, (laughs) what, (laughs) what are you talking about? Okay. All right. And then you free soloed the rostrum and okay. And, and then years later, you know, we became good friends and we'd worked together a number of times. And and a couple of years ago, he and I were hanging out somewhere, and we were just you know hanging out at a dinner table, and and <laughs> somehow that story came up, and I said, "Do you remember that, Alex? Like, do you remember when we were hanging out in Yosemite, and you told me that you'd like dragged your then girlfriend up Astro Man, and it was boring?" And Alex, being again like a genie, Alex looks at me and he says, "Yeah, and I remember you just looked at me and thought this guy's full of shit." <laughs> And now he's getting escorted by police, <laughs> by police convoys all over Denver. Like in the last hour and a half, he's gone like four different places. It's crazy. <laughs> oh man, it's just funny how how that stuff happens. <laughs> it, it's it was hard to edit the book because you couldn't just look at it face value. Here's seventy pictures. Get it down to fifty. Right. Because you kind of had to know the story right. behind the image and say. Is the story more valuable right. than the photo? You know, sometimes the story is better than the photograph. Sometimes the photograph's as good as the story. And so it was, uh, it was hard to get it down to 53. Certainly the team at the Mountaineers were, they were awesome. Like they, they definitely, they actually helped me beef up the book a little bit. Like I think I was being even more critical. I wanted it to be tighter and they're like, no, it's okay. Like let a few more images into the book. Right. Yeah, yeah. As you've looked back on all these images, and you've talked about, um, you know, the stories that go behind them. Uh, another parallel, you know, we open with some kind of interesting parallels, or at least in my mind, between what I do or what I'm doing in my life and what you did. And and one thing that I've noticed uh, with what you do is that maybe it's out of respect or whatever, but a lot of the subjects of your, at least climbing photography, I think have become some of your close friends. Oh yeah, and um, and I, and you know, it's interesting with this podcast thing that I'm friends with several people that I s- met the first time I talked with them on this on this podcast, because you know, even in this moment, we can we can share a lot of stories and get sort of um a really good glimpse of each other. 
what does that feel like when when you're shooting someone and on these ex- is it because you're on expeditions is it because you're you're um you know you're you're getting these intimate sort of moments from them of of difficulty of stress I mean, how does that work i you know i i i feel like the greatest gift of this career spending time with amazing people mm-hmm. who who as you just said become your closest friends you know i i think climbing is so special in that unlike nba basketball you know if if you love basketball the, the pros play on one court and it's in an arena and there's 10,000 people around that arena, around that court climbers, guess what? Like Tommy and Alex and Beth and Andra, and they're all going to the same crag that you and I are going to. And like, we might be on like an easier climb 25 feet to the left or a hundred feet to the left, but we're on the same court. Like that's, that's, that's what's amazing about climbing. We share, we go to the same practice fields. We go to the same court our crags are the crags. Like it's where, you know, if someone wants to go and climb cracks, they're going to the Creek. And, and I think that's something that I, I didn't understand early on in my career. Like I, I didn't, I didn't know any of the kind of the legends of climbing when I was 20 years old, but I spent a lot of time outside and I wanted to make pictures. And so I, I bumped into the Beth Roddens of the world and the Tommy Caldwell's of the world and the Chris Sharma's of the world, because we all share that same playground. We're all in that same court. And then you just start spending, you know, look, it all comes down to like people and, and wanting to spend time around people that you appreciate and admire and like enjoy their company. I mean, I, I say this all the time. Life is short. Like I don't, I don't want to spend time around assholes. Like I, I just have zero, zero. I'm just not inspired. I'm not motivated. I can't be creative. And I feel like one of the greatest gifts in my career and in, in the climbing culture is that we get to bump into, you know, we meet lots of people by being at the base of a crag. Blang's like the ultimate gift, right? You're, you're blang and there's some guy next to you and you just start rapping and then you meet him at the campfire. And, and that's how I've met some of, you know, the, sort of the greatest climbers of our time and, and how they've become my best friends is by spending time at the campfire and at the crag. And then eventually, you know, you're, you're sitting in vans together, driving across the country and getting on planes together and sharing tents together. And, and I, and I think it was a generational thing. Like I, I grew up with the, the, this generation of climbers and I'm, what excites me is that there's a photographer, there's a young storyteller, he or she is now like doing what they're, like they're, they're starting that experience right now. They're going to grow up with the next generation of climbers, but that gift of, of hanging out with sort of the, not just hanging out, like being, being the documentarian of one of the documentarians of this generation has been so rewarding because of the people. Right. It's, you know, I, I, I unquestionably, some of my closest friends happen to be like the best climbers of our generation because we all shared that same playing field. And, you know, to make it work in this industry as a climber, you need media, like you need photographs. And I think to make it work as a photographer, to be a storyteller, a content creator, you need access to people that are, kind of pushing the envelope and, and raising the bar and setting the standard. And so there's, there's kind of this perfect marriage actually. Yeah. I, I never, I never like set out to make that happen. It's just naturally how that occurs in our industry. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, we we're sort of lucky that these guys and girls that, that are the best for the most part. Yeah. They're all 
they're all pretty cool. They're good people. Yeah, yeah. they're good people. I, I think don't think that's that's, like, that's another thing that like the NBA or whatever, yeah. you know, are not no. always the case. I totally agree with you. Yeah. It's, I can't think of a single. I mean, I, I can only think in you know I can count it on one hand, one or two experiences in my career where I thought at the end of a trip I can't hang with this person. Right. I, climbers just in general tend to be pretty damn solid people. You know, we're rooted in the same value system. We care about the planet. We care about kind of our mental health. We care about our physical health. We, we, you know, camaraderie and relationship. And it's all, it's, it's, you know, we all care about those same things. And it's, you know, one of the great rewards is now watching everybody grow up together. You know, sort of watching, I was, a couple of years ago, we were in Spain, my wife and I and our daughter, and we went and visited Chris Sharma and his family. And it's just this, it's this magical moment when you realize like we were all kids together, like we were all kind of finding our way together. And, and now it's, you know, we've moved on to that next phase in life. Like, you know, Chris is still an incredible climber, but now he's like running a business and he has a kid and he's married and, and it's, and, but still that same philosophy, like the value system hasn't changed. And I think that's true for Chris. It's true for Tommy. It's true for Beth. It's true for you know, kind of the whole, the list of incredible athletes that I've, I feel like I've been fortunate to both photograph, but also call some of my closest friends. It's awesome to now experience this, the rest of the journey with them. And, um, and I, you know, I, I think, I don't know if you read Beth's op-ed piece. Did, did no, I just, that? I just saw it. I haven't read yeah, it. I, I just read it on the plane out today and it was, I mean, I, we're just living in a freaking great time. We're living in a time where you know, that our culture, our climbing culture embraces the idea that it's not just about doing the hardest stuff, the scariest stuff, but it's actually about creating a lifestyle. And, you know, the essence of what Beth said is like, she's, you know, she's a great female climber, but also a mother and like the industry still embraces who she is and supports that. And it's, you know, I, I'm, I think I'm really proud that we're part of an industry where we value as a culture and as an industry that part of growing up and part of turning this into a lifelong passion is, is not just about difficulty ratings, but right. it's about how do you make this sustainable? How do you have a family? How do you, how do you make this part of your lifestyle for the long game? And, and, um, I feel like we're all, we're fortunate enough that we can do that. Well, thanks for coming on the show, but also thanks. I mean, you, you talked about the inspiration that you got from Tom but the thing about what you've done, I think, over your career is inspired everybody. I mean, we sort of owe you a debt. And, you know, you you, you talked about your inspirations. You talked about Greg and, and Jim, Galen to a certain extent, Tom. It's like you're now that person. You're in that group for, like you said, the next generation. But also, you know, I think so many images that the listeners don't even know were yours, but just like blew their minds or got them thinking or you know inspired them to go do something where your photos and so thanks man i want to thank you that makes me feel old thanks (laughs) (laughs) all right folks thanks for listening and thanks to Corey for sitting down he actually kind of made a special trip out of his way to colorado for that one and i appreciate that a great deal and um if any of you are wondering why we didn't talk about Everest or taking pictures of Honnell's naked butt, 
Well, first of all, the pictures of Honnold's butt, oiled and graceful, hadn't happened yet. And also, you're thinking of Corey Richards. Now, it's ironic, a little bit strange coincidence that two of the modern great climbing photographers are so close in moniker. Corey Rich, Corey Richards, Corey Rich has an E in Corey, Corey Richards does not. But yeah, kind of confusing. I know they both deal with it ad nauseum. Maybe we'll have Corey Richards on another time, and then we can have them both on at the same time. Confuse the hell out of everybody. Okay, that was a long one, so you're probably exhausted. So let's just get out of here. Don't forget to check your knots. Now you're a lemma. Running as a pack. Yes, yes, we go left. We go right. Yes, yes, yes. There's a predator out of the jungle. What's going on? Burrow! Burrow! That's right, you're a lemma. It's all you've got. You don't have sharp teeth capable of biting. Make an interconnected series of tunnels like the Viet Cong. And look, 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 look. I'm not even shooting you. It's crazy. And I'm spent.